In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an incredible guest here with me today. Gabrielle, how are you? I am awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. You're a total rock star in your world, the purpose company. Of course, everyone's searching for their life purpose and just all your awesomeness. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm so stoked to jump into this with you. I am as well. And I always start with the most complex question of all time. (laughs) Very loaded. But what led you on your journey to where you are today? I started in a really difficult spot. I know you did too with your own upbringing. And my dad's an alcoholic, raised in an alcoholic home, really being raised with this idea that I was never enough. So I remember I came home from school one day. My dad was passed out in the chair and he said something about always wanting a son. I'm the second of two girls. And so that really gave me a persona of, you know, if I was more masculine, if I was more driven, if I was more achievement oriented, then maybe I would be more lovable. And so it took this mindset of me at eight or nine years old, when your brain isn't fully formed, that you're now thinking about the world in a place of how can I prove myself? So from a really early age, I became addicted to achievement. I had to become number one in my class, number one in my sports, number one in absolutely every sphere of my life, feeling like if I was achieving something, then I was doing something with my life. Well, that all crashed and burned when I was going into college. I'm the first person in my family, my sister and I, to go to college. No one sat us down and said, hey, you know, you should probably start applying for college. I finished high school and then realized that all of my friends had already selected their college like two years prior. So I was in this position. My parents had just gotten a divorce. We were living in hotels and trying to start all over. And I realized that my achievement hadn't gotten me the results that I wanted. I thought as a millennial that if I played by the rules, got the good grades, did the extracurriculars, was number one on the on the team, that I was going to have everything just laid out for me. And here I was, I got kicked out of class on my in my second semester because we couldn't pay for my college. I had uh, dislocated my knee and I was like hobbling around trying to figure out life. And I think in that moment, I realized and I was about 18 years old at the time that if I wanted my life to be different, I was going to have to do something that was different. And so I took a really different approach at that time and really took a lot more control over my career. I ended up going into politics because being the millennial that I am, I wanted to change the world. I thought, well, if I can help get the right people elected or help the right uh, legislation get passed, then I'll do my part in the world. Um, I did both of those things and realized I think I was more of the problem than the solution. So after a few years in government and my boss at the time, who was an elected official, decided to not run for election again, said, hey, you know, you're out of a job. I decided to move from California, which is where I was at the time, to Virginia and start completely over. 
And so there I was sleeping on the floor of an apartment that I shared with a girl that I had just previously met, you know, starting over from scratch again. And I remember a girlfriend of mine had given me a, a note before we left. And she said, I'm terrible at goodbyes. Just read this note later. And, and in it, and it's framed actually in my office, it said, you know, even if you come back and you feel like you're a total failure, even if you have to move back home with your mom, she said, we just want to let you know that we're proud of you. Because you are able to do something that so many of us would never dream of, and that's leave. And so that really helped kind of push me through a lot of the ups and downs and the setbacks and trials and, and triumphs through everything of, of starting over, starting my own business at 23 after going to a conference, seeing someone speaking on stage about millennials, realizing that what he was saying was wrong and that I could say it better. It really started to push in me this fire to really listen to the voice inside of me and do something that was different and do something that scared me. So at that point, I uh, left my job. Uh, started my company, wrote my book, and kind of the the rest is history. That's incredible. You are such a rock star. I love your journey, and thank you for taking us sort of through it. And of course, we're gonna we're gonna pick at it little by little. But one question that I have for you is, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were a kid, what what did you what did you dream of? In eighth grade, I was very clear that I wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to be an aerobics instructor, and number two, I wanted to be United States senator. And if I could do those two things at the same time, I thought I had just finally hit the money. I was like, I don't know in what world I would be an elected official also to leading some sort of, you know, fitness element of it. But um, but I think that those two elements still kind of ring true, not only to my personality, that I, I love health and fitness and longevity. Um, I talk about all the time how I'm planning to be 120. Like I'm really focused on how do you take care of yourself so that way you can give more, be more, do more with your purpose. But I've always been really passionate about politics and, and government and in doing so creating opportunities for people that I myself didn't necessarily get growing up. Your story is incredible. And I mean, I love how it ties together with what you're doing now, which you wanted to be as a kid is really tied into because what you're doing now is advocacy work. You're representing yeah. millennials like that. Yeah. You, you are our senator, my friend. You are <laughs> our senator, the millennial. The unelected. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that when you listen to those dreams that you had when you were a kid and recognize that so much of that, I think, is like the heartbeat that's inside of you, that as children, we're not afraid to dream. Like when you walk into a room full of kindergartners or first graders and you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? They're all raising their hands or screaming like astronaut, firefighter, you know, whatever. They're not afraid to say what they want to be. But something happens as we get older. We no longer talk about what we want to be. We talk about how we want to feel. I want to feel secure. I want to feel loved. I want to feel more attractive. I want to feel more successful. And so somewhere along the way, we swap out this identity of being someone with feeling something. And I think it's really become very dangerous for us to be so focused on how we feel, let alone rather than looking at our opportunity is how do we create a platform to help other people first by ourselves becoming the people that we need to be and secondarily using our purpose to help others become who it is that they need to be. Absolutely. It's almost like as a kid, you have no filter, right? You're just like, I want to be this. Boom. Yep. And as you get older, like society plants these filters in your mind that makes it transform into feelings, like you said. Then there kind of is like a filter on those. You want to feel secure. That means job. That means this. That means that, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, I think that there are plenty of adults that don't have filters, right? But but I think that there's a freedom to dream and think creatively when you're a child that as we get older, we just try and look at what is currently available and make what's currently available. And so it's like if you're going to go make a recipe, you're just looking inside of your pantry for what exists versus realizing there's a grocery store down the street. Like those are two different mindsets of what do I have that I can make something with versus what do I want to make and how do I get what I need? Mm-hmm. And and that mindset is so much more empowering when you realize like I can create anything I want. Like my life changed when I was at this conference in in Hawaii where I saw that guy speaking on stage and I was like, I can do that. And I remember I was walking down the beach and I just had this moment where I realized that I had a choice. It sounds so simple and basic to tell someone that they have a choice, but there's a difference between saying it and believing it. Because at the time, I didn't think I did. I was 23 years old. I was in a career that everyone would assume was a good job. I was making okay money. I had a good relationship. I had good friends. I was checking off all of these boxes of what I was supposed to do, but I wasn't happy or fulfilled. And so when I took a step back and realized that if my life isn't the way that I want it, I have a choice to either stay in it or do something about it. And and so I'm a big believer in changing your physical location to change your mental location. Like if you're stuck, move, go on a vacation, do a retreat, walk outside, whatever you can do, because we oftentimes just stay in this rut because we're afraid of doing the unknown. But the unknown actually unlocks this whole other level of our brain. Like there, that's the reason that you have your best ideas when you're on vacation or when you're in the shower. It's like your brain is able to tap into those deeper thoughts, those deeper dreams and unlock things inside of you. So for me, it really kind of started with that kind of mantra for my life was, I have a choice. Right. And I love that you differentiated that, you know, it sounds so simple, but it's actually very complex when you when you think about it, when you think about it. And I adore how you just framed that in, in many different ways. I mean, it's you do have the choice to do it. It's you. It's your life. How do you want to create it? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's been your own journey as well as like how you've been able to reinvent yourself and push past things and realize, hey, I can either let my circumstances define me or I can create an opportunity for myself and my family that didn't exist before. Absolutely. And I love that you were inspired by the comments. You're like, hey, I could do that better. That's super cool. And I mean, throughout your lifetime, you so you're like a chronic overachiever, as am I. And it was <laughs> with me, it started because, you know, my my parents, I, they'd always be working all the time. So I never got to see them. And like, you know, I wanted to be able to say like, when I would see them, like, hey, mom, hey, dad, like, here's what I did. Like, look, at I got an A, I'm on honor roll, you know, things to make them proud. So as they're working all day, they have something to look forward to when they get home. Then you start achieving and you're just addicted, addicted, addicted. So I'm sure you know how, how I feel about this. But, you know, you have faced rejection and struggle and challenge. And, and, you know, in those moments, like, for example, you mentioned your sophomore year with school that you were getting kicked out. How did you deal with that? And how did you move past that? Because it just, you, know, you never know who's listening, who may be going through something similar in, in the face mm-hmm. of rejection or what have you in any aspect of life. How did you sort of push past that? Yeah, I think when you face really big hardships, you rely on the muscles that you've built throughout your lifetime. 
So being a child of an alcoholic, someone who has substance abuse in their house, you really learn how to protect yourself from disappointment pretty quickly. You learn how to choose to be happy. You learn how to segment your life. You learn how to say everything's fine when it's not. And uh, and so when you have those kind of issues at home, I think it's given you, it gives you kind of an overcomer advantage that many other people who maybe haven't experienced those kind of hardships had. And so from an early age, I really did see it as a benefit that I had muscles that maybe some of my friends or my colleagues didn't have at the same time. So when that moment happened where I remember I woke up and I was getting ready for class and my friends were texting me, hey, where are we going for lunch? And then my mom walked into my room and said, sorry, kiddo, you can't go back to college. We don't have enough money to put you through. Mm -hmm. And I was I went through all of the emotions. I was angry, I was embarrassed, I was frustrated. I felt betrayed, not by my mother who was doing the hardest work that she could imagine just to kind of put us through. I was I just felt betrayed by the system. I felt like I'd done everything I was supposed to and and they're supposed to help me out and they didn't. And and so I remember it took me about an hour and a half and I finally got up, got on my crutches and I went to the nearest community college and I sat in on classes. And I said, okay, I can either take a semester off and pout or get a job, or I can just go to a different school where I can walk into these classes, try and get as much as my general ed done and get done with college sooner rather than later. And the craziest thing happened. I worked my butt off that entire semester. I finished classes early. I, you know, did very well. And over the summer, I was getting ready to decide, well, do I want to go back to my university or do I want to just finish out here at a community college? I was calling the financial aid at this the university that I eventually graduated from, and I said, um, "Hey, just want to call and see, you know, what would I owe if I were to come back?" And they said twelve, and I said, "Okay, like twelve thousand, like twelve hundred, like okay, I think I can." I've been saving, so I was like, "I think I can work on that. I think I can figure that out." And they said, "No, twelve dollars." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And they said, "There was an anonymous donor that covered your semester." And then I don't cry. Like I joke around all the time. I've had my tear ducts removed, but I bawled that day because it felt as if finally I had that break that I was waiting for and praying for that I felt like, you know, the hard work and the sacrifice that I had done was, was notified. And to this day, I don't know who this person was that actually opened the door for me to go and and get a four-year degree. Wow. So just an anonymous donor and you paid $12. Yep. Oh my gosh, but it's because you worked your tail off and you manifested it. Yeah. You created that reality. How amazing is that? Oh my God. I love when the universe works. It's magic in the most magical ways. Oh, I love that. I just got chills right when you were describing that. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? And so with that, you were able to finish your four-year degree without a worry, which is... Yeah, without any sort of debt or anything like that. And it ended up just being an absolutely incredible experience getting some of the best mentors in the world. And the president of the university actually married my husband and I. We're really close with him. And it was just a really incredible opportunity that I I always knew I was going to go to college. But again, in you know our generation, no one really sat us down and said, you're supposed to go. It was, do you want to make something of yourself? And especially an addiction, <laughs> addicted to achiever types like us, uh, you know, that was the absolutely necessary next step. And so I I got to this place and I had graduated from college in I think 2008 and that wasn't exactly the best time to be looking for a job or a career at that point and I got into government my parents are entrepreneurs I wanted nothing to do with entrepreneurship I was like what is the opposite of entrepreneurship 
government. That's what I'm going to go. I'm going to go work for the government, which I did. And it was kind of funny how I ended up on this entrepreneurial journey. But like many other people my age, when people weren't hiring, we went back to school. And so it was this arms race of education that you felt you were more worthy because you had more degrees. And, and so my, my grad school experience was one that I don't regret because of the people that I met, but it was an investment that was completely unnecessary because no one was willing to tell me, Gab, where do you want to go? And what kind of education do you need? Not education from an institution, but education from mentors, education from books, education from experience, which I think is now really changing the game. I mean, I've read more books this last year as an entrepreneur than I did in any of my educational endeavors because I'm invested in myself, because I know the ROI of if I read a good book, if I find the right mentor, if I take the right course that gets me out of my own way, that's going to make me more money, make me more successful, make me live longer, you name it, whatever my value is I'm, I'm, I'm achieving for, it changes the game. But I think oftentimes we put our own success in other people's hands when we say, you need to educate me. If you're an employee and you're saying, hey, you need to prepare me for leadership or you're an entrepreneur saying, well, you know, I need to wait for the next opportunity or the next client to come to me. And and that's something that I learned pretty early on through my own life experience and even getting a master's degree, realizing I spent two years on this thing. I didn't get paid more. I didn't have any more wisdom. I knew how to get more work done, right? I think if anything, it taught me how to multitask like a pro, but it didn't have a measurable impact on my life. When you get to that point, as you get older, you realize I'm not going to invest my time in something. Time is the one thing I'll never get back. I will not invest my time in something that I do not get a large enough return on. And I think that we need to hold education institutions or anybody who's investing in us accountable to say, what am I getting out of what it is that I'm putting in? Right. A lot of people are questioning the educational system and how it's really not keeping up with current time. I mean, the world is moving so fast and the educational system is like so behind in in many, many ways. You know, even just like elementary school. I mean, the whole system, I feel like has to be reworked. That's a whole conversation within its own for sure. But, you know, like you just said, like, what's my ROI? Especially you're talking about grad school, which is super duper expensive, super duper expensive. And not only that, but time, like you said, the time investment. So, and, and, I, and I see that they're, Oh, the educational system is shifting a little bit that they're creating like certificates and shorter term programs and things mm-hmm. like that. So I guess that it is shifting in a way, but it's just crazy to see. And it's it's crazy to hear that perspective, you know, on it. It's just like, meh, I don't know. I don't know. But the cool thing about your story. So you were at this conference and you're listening. You're like, I can do this better. I want to, I want to know <laughs> how did that idea turn? How did you execute that idea? Because a lot of people have great ideas. Oh, we're full of them. Woo, this is such a great, marvelous idea. The key is execution. And you've been able to do that so beautifully. So walk me through, how did you take your, your you know, from concept to execution? Because what you're working on is so amazing. So I'd mm-hmm. love, love to hear your process. Yeah. So when you get an idea, just having the idea doesn't guarantee success. There are plenty of good ideas. I mean, how many times have you been in a grocery store or watching Shark Tank or see a new company come out and you said, oh, well, I thought of that. And you feel almost betrayed like someone took your idea, but it's like, no, but they put in the investment, they put in the sweat equity, they put in the time and and the frustration of actually making it, making it happen. And so if you have an idea, you are not entitled to it. 
you are only entitled to success if you work for it. So I had this idea of here's this guy up there speaking on stage. I knew that I'd already written one book about millennials when I was 17. So I was already kind of recognizing that I had this draw towards my generation to have a an opportunity to communicate and to work with my generation on stepping into who it is that they were meant to be. I knew that from a very young age, that was my passion was helping millennials find and use their purpose. And uh, But I didn't know how to do that. So I saw this guy speaking at this business conference about millennials. And so I recognized, number one, there's product market fit. So if you have an idea, look to see who else is already executing on that idea. Don't come to me and say, well, no one's ever thought of this. It's totally brilliant. There's either two reasons for that. Number one is because you're right. It is totally brilliant. No one's ever thought of it and you're going to be the first. Or number two, they tried it and it didn't work. More likely than not, it's number two. So do your research. Don't come to me and say, no one's ever tried this before. It's probably because the model doesn't exist. So look for the, the successful model to pattern your business or movement off of. So number two, I looked at, okay, so there's a model that's successful. Here's this guy speaking to this group, clearly getting paid. He's in Hawaii, all expenses paid. I can see myself doing that. Number two, it was, what do I have that's unique to the conversation? So I'm 23 years old and I said, okay, I don't have a PhD. I have this lousy master's in government, which I'm never going to use. I'm like really crapping all over my master's degree today. Sorry. I didn't have any official experience, even in HR or management. I was a fundraising director and I was a sucky one. I was the kind of person that said, if you want to give, you can. If you don't want to, totally fine. I was like super apathetic. I just sucked. So I didn't have any formal experience, but instead of letting that psych myself out of why I shouldn't, I looked at what unique experience do I have that this guy doesn't have? I said, well, number one, I'm a millennial. So I looked at who I am and I said, who I am is different than who he is. So naturally that's going to set myself apart. Number two, it was my experience. My experience being young in the workforce, I'd worked for a number of companies at that time. And I said, okay, my experience is going to be different. And then number three, I said, he's only using his research. I can become an empirical expert based off of what other people have said. Because there's only two types of experts. There's the experience expert who says, I'm an expert in Kilimanjaro because I've hiked it 17 times and can tell you what to do and what not to do. Or there's the empirical expert who says, I haven't hiked it, but I interviewed this top seven people who have. I know the weather conditions. I know the science behind it. And the highest paid experts are the ones that are both. So I knew I didn't have the experience, but I could become an empirical expert because again, addicted to achievement, I can study like nobody's business. So that's really where I started was I said, okay, what about myself and my story is different? And how do I set myself apart as this empirical expert? And the maybe the fourth thing was I was dared to. So I'm extremely competitive. And at this conference, I met someone who ended up becoming a very dear friend of mine, but he said in this networking meeting where I met him, what one word makes you smile? Which is a very weird question to ask someone you've never met. And really without thinking, I looked at him and I said, generations. And he said, well, that's a weird answer. And I said, well, that was a weird question. And he said, okay, so generations, what are you going to do about that? And without thinking, I said, I'm going to write a book. And he said, okay. He said, in six months, he said, give me your phone number. In six months, I'm going to call you. And I'm going to make sure that you're done with that book in six months. And sure enough, like clockwork, he called me six months later and I was launching my book and I invited him to my book launch party. So that accountability component of it, I think is really important. Like if you have an idea and you're telling your friends and your family, they're all going to say, yes, it's amazing because they know you and love you. That's not who you want your focus group to be. Your friends are not your focus group. 
you want to find the random person who doesn't know you from Adam, who's going to either keep you accountable or invest in you or say, yeah, your product is worth going after because they have no need to be polite to you. (laughs) They don't need to lie to you. They don't get anything from it. So you want to look at past behavior or current trends. You don't want to look at what someone say they will do in the future. That's just not helpful. Um, so those are that's kind of the pattern that I used either consciously or subconsciously to be able to go from an unfulfilled nine to five fundraiser to someone who eventually got to the place where I published my book. I've, I've written six, but I wrote my second book and got to the point where I then was able to leverage an expert brand and turn it into something that now serves and helps companies around the world. That's incredible. That's incredible. Like I said, execution is key. And, you know, the first two to three years of entrepreneurship, I I like to say three to five sometimes, you know, you know, breaking that and because you're doing something totally new, right? It's a new concept, new everything. What were some of the biggest hardships as an entrepreneur that you had to overcome in those first years of, of business and kind of mastering that and moving forward? Because I mean, I know for me, you know, there's this whole entrepreneurial mindset that nobody talks about, like the entrepreneurial mental health where like, because here goes, right? You're an entrepreneur, you launch your business, you want everyone to think that you're successful. But then when you hit roadblocks, then who do you talk to? Because then you're like, oh my God, am I not successful? Am I not? Am I not succeeding here? Like what's, what's happening? And I found myself in that. And then it's almost feels like imposter syndrome. And like you go through like this rabbit hole of things. So I'm just curious to know, you know, how was the first three to five years for you and how did you break, break through? Yeah. The first three to five years were by definition, a roller coaster and um, being in an industry where a lot of my my um, work was training, consulting, speaking. And so it's very me focused. And so being the brand, it's very easy to take things personally. In any sort of business, you take things personally because sometimes it's personal. Like you can go ahead and lie and say, oh, it was a bad day or, you know, whatever they found someone for a cheaper price. But if they're spending less, it simply means that they valued money um, and saving money over they valued the product or service that you were putting forward. So I think the first few years were definitely an ego adjustment where you start off saying everybody needs my service, realizing that's not true and realizing that I have a duty, like how you overcome um, fear of sales is recognizing that your purpose is your duty, like that thing inside of you to help other people. It's your duty to be able to help people. And so like in uh, our new company, The Purpose Company, where we help people find and use their purpose, if I meet people and I think that they're a great candidate for the program and I can't help them, I get upset about it. I, 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 I'm grieved and mourned over it because I'm like, I know that I can help you get to where it is that you need to be. And I feel like I've lost an opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that they talk about that in entrepreneurship of so believing in your solution that it breaks your heart when you can't help someone with it. And that, I think, changed the game for me. And whereas before I was really focused on whether it was our financial growth or our market share growth or whatever that looked like, I think at the beginning, there's this mindset of fake it till you make it. Like, hey, everything's great. And you're projecting, projecting, projecting. And there's very much, like you said, that imposter syndrome of who I'm appearing to be online is not how I feel in my heart. And that isn't just a uniquely entrepreneurial challenge. I think that many of us, male, female, you know, wherever you're at on the economic scale, whatever age you are, has that moment of like, 
Am I really who I think that I am? And I think it's one of the healthiest things that you can come to terms with. And it doesn't go away. No matter where you're at in your height or you're or just starting out, you're still going to have those moments. It's how you look at them. So if you look at that moment of imposter syndrome of like, oh my gosh, I'm not worthy. I should stop what I'm doing now and you know run back to safe haven. You're missing a huge opportunity to recognize what was that trigger? Was it an insecurity? I operated for a very long time in my business as a little sister. So I'm the youngest of two. I'm a very outspoken person. Um, But I noticed when I came to business meetings and people were older than me or women were more outspoken than me, I would take a step back because I have a very outspoken older sister. Mm -hmm. So I started to study birth order and how that impacted, again, back to you studying yourself instead of just what education says you need to know, I realized I need to study birth order. And it helped me so much understanding. It's like a fun party trick I now use as I try to guess people's birth order. But I studied it for a very long time because I knew I was getting triggered into something. So I think instead of just saying like, oh my gosh, you shouldn't think that way. You shouldn't feel that way. Well, rather than saying no and and waving your finger at a feeling, welcoming it in and saying, what triggered that? Where did that come from? What was I feeling? Was it, am I tired? Am I feeling lonely? Is there something going on that I'm not giving space to actually consider? And I'm seeing that as an opportunity to go deeper rather than seeing it as a character flaw. And, And I think that I learned a lot about that. So major highs and lows, let me just tell you. So in those first three to five years, I got married. My husband started his business the week that we moved in together after the honeymoon. So that was a huge challenge. We're literally in the U-Haul. I'm driving. He's doing his sales calls for his first company. He ended up selling that company um, to his partner in the Netherlands. He and I started working together. That's like a whole other book on how to work with your partner and not kill them in their sleep. So that was a huge challenge because it was also to my company who was coming in to run. So being a female CEO and then having your husband come in and handing that over to them was like having a child and then saying, hey, can you take care of this for me? And I was not a gracious, gracious business partner at that point. I will be totally honest. I lost my crap. Um, So, but it ended up being a really incredible thing because through that, we now, I still run the Millennial Solution, which is my millennial consulting company. um, And we work with major brands around the world on engaging the next generation. But we also too started a new company from that because we came together and we recognized I feel drawn to helping people find and use their purpose, find unlimited motivation and push through the barriers that have held them back. And my husband not only feels that way, but is also too extremely practical in helping people develop courses, write books, land TED Talks. And so we recognize that there is a marriage literally of our two purposes coming together. And so that's where the purpose company came from, which now we help people across the country who are in this place. They feel unfulfilled. They feel like they're underutilized. They know they're made for more. They just can't get unstuck. And so what we've created is a system that we call Purpose Mastery that we lead you through. How do you first find your purpose and use your purpose, but how do you turn it into something that not only fulfills you, but financially supports you? And uh, and so that's really been our, our biggest journey over the last year and a half is launching this company and um, seeing it take off. And more than anything, it's been the lives of the people we've been able to help through it. It's been absolutely incredible. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. You mentioned so many beautiful things in there. Like, the, for example, the one not killing your partner. <laughs> sleep 
like that that just I reminded me of my mom and dad because they work together in their restaurant and I'm like I don't think I could ever do this so good <laughs> yeah you. Well, my parents worked together too. And I told myself <laughs> the same damn thing. Yeah. So I was like, under no circumstance, am I going to work with my spouse? And then it happened. And it was so funny because sometimes people fall into working with their spouse because of convenience, because they're around all the time and you know it's free labor or whatever. I think some people work together because of they have a shared goal. And so like they're coming together, maybe that's actually how they become a couple is they work together and then they fall in love and they want to build something else. But it's knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it is really what has saved us time and time again and recognizing each other for their strengths and not projecting your own strengths or your own weaknesses on them definitely helped. But yeah, I mean, that could be like a whole other podcast because <laughs> like the struggle, girl, the struggle is real. It is real. It is fun. It is super fulfilling and amazing. But yeah, no one really prepares you for that, especially if you have parents who did it. And yeah. I said no, but here I am. <laughs> and God is laughing. <laughs> You know, I think it's because you're both in alignment is what it sounds like. And that's the super cool thing. That's the super cool thing that still binds you together, which is so, so awesome. And you've had just such an incredible journey so far and the work that you're working on. And, you know, I love this question. It's my favorite question. But what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Yeah, um, I love that question. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I would say anything. I The biggest mistakes and the biggest regrets, because I hate when people say that they don't have regrets. I think that they're lying. We all have so many regrets. Um, my biggest regrets were not searching mentors more earnestly. Now I had incredible mentors, um, but there were times in my life, especially my entrepreneurship, that I just, I wanted someone to tell me what to do. And I had this like princess in a castle mindset. Like if I just sit and wait long enough, someone's going to discover me, which is crap. That's not how the world works. And you don't deserve to be discovered if that's your mindset. So I, I think I had to get that readjusted. But my biggest regrets have always been that I didn't stock success like I should have. Mm. I waited for things to happen. And so I didn't really go after the key mentors like I should have. Like when I got introduced to people, like I should have flown to meet with them or set up more consistent appointments. I think I let the ball sit in other people's courts for too long rather than really taking ownership of the relationship capital that I had really early on, either through circumstance or through connections. And, um, and I think that's what I would tell myself, if anything, is just stock success. Find the people who are doing what you want to do. Surround yourself with their work, with their content, and if possible, get in touch with them personally. Love it. And you touched on a little bit of what you're working on in your company, the Purpose Company, six to 12 months. What's, what's coming up? Yeah, so much. So um, our TED Talk, so uh, our second TED Talk, uh, our TEDx Talk is called Your Purpose is Your Permission. And so that's going to be released here. Um, and Brian and I got to do that together. And it's a really, um, it's a message just super close to our heart is stop waiting for permission to find and use your purpose. There's never a perfect time. Stop asking other people for their advice move forward. So I'm super stoked about that. And then we're developing a, an assessment for companies actually to use to help their employees find their purpose and connect it to their work. So that's going to be an absolute like total game changer in the space of people. We've been talking about mission for so long as companies, but how do you talk about purpose? in a really practical way. Because we got into this business because I was so darn tired of people telling me in my 20s to find my purpose. I was like, what the heck does that even mean? 
you know, like I, I don't really like platitudes. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need an inspirational poster with like a cat hanging down saying like, hang in there. Like I, I want to know what I can do. And so getting really frustrated with the platitude of find your purpose turned us into these purpose experts really by accident. And it took seven years of us studying, analyzing, developing programs around purpose, working with major companies to come up with the system that we now have that we teach in Purpose Mastery, but is also too available in our book, The Purpose Factor. That's incredible. I just adore you, your journey and what you're up to in the world. Because, you know, as the world shifts into more mission driven. I mean, it's proven that millennials, they they not only like the salary doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, it does in a way, but it's not everything anymore. People want purpose. Yep. Yeah. So I think you're at the right place, the right time with the right message. And it's just going to continue to just evolve and just, you're just going to keep killing it, which I love, love, love. Now you've got to let everyone know where to find you and your awesomeness. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. Yeah. So they can check us out at sevenfigurepurpose.com, the number sevenfigurepurpose.com. It's our free community. We do free training on how to find your purpose and use your purpose and really share and get as connected as possible. So yeah, join our free community, check it out, check it out, learn more about us. And we love it. Sevenfigurepurpose.com. Thank you so much again for being here today. Such an honor to have you, Gab. You're amazing. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode. Oh.